Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another wonderful and exciting episode of the Anthology of Horror. I'm your host and narrator, spring Jack, and we're going to get started today after just a few brief disclaimers. First of all, the show might offend you. If you're easily offended, please turn the show off and spare me the negative reviews on the podcast store, or the iTunes store, whatever the fuck you call it, uh, because you won't like the show. This is your first and final warning. Second, I use advertisements in this show that I do not own the rights to. They are the creative property of Rockstar Games. That is all. San Andreas just can't get enough of the Glory Hole theme park. Glory Hole. It's the place for magic and adventure. We all like speaking rodents to entertain and educate our kids. And now with Jerry Gerbil, the kids have someone they can really relate to. Kids, come and play. I've got puppies to show you. Yay, Jerry's speaking rodents. Go on, kids, have fun. I know it's safe. Jerry's wearing a latex bodysuit. See you later, Mom. We're off to have fun with strangers. Glory of the Flaming Screen Machine. Glory Hole Theme Park. Glory Hole! Open every day till 3 a.m. Come live the mystery. Tired of all the sunshine and good weather? Looking for a real American vacation? Visit the Shining Jewel and the Rust Belt Crown, Casa City. It's a real man's vacation. The pride of a nation is in Casa City. It's steel, ice, and poverty. Spend a romantic evening in the beauty of the nighttime river glow at the Flaming River. Watch real men who make things lose their jobs and fight on our special Closing the Mill guided tour. Come see what we're really made of. This is real America. Drunk, proud, unemployed and angry. Hear the eagle roar in Casa City. This is what the heartland is all about. All right, squad, we're back today with a special pre-holiday episode. I promised you guys I would get one out before Thanksgiving, and here I am, look at me, keeping my promises. What's up? So it's going to be a uh, medley of scary stories, uh, scary in quotation marks, of course, uh, that I found on the internet that I have yet to read. I'm going to read them with you. My reaction will be genuine, as always, with these, unless I tell you otherwise. And without any further ado, here we go. This first one is called Somebody Tried to Use My Empathy... Again, me. So I lived alone in a bad neighborhood just outside the city. At this point, I had been living there for maybe three years with no incident. Well, I mean, there were several shootings on my street, but no one shot at me, so not an incident, I guess. I'm the kind of person who can't sit still for very long, so I find myself standing or pacing quite a bit. Probably lives above me, that fucking asshole. On this particular night, maybe around 2 a.m., I was pacing while reading a textbook to prepare for an upcoming test at my university. I stopped pacing for a little and just stood near my front door to read. That's when I heard my doorknob turn. For some reason, though I nearly shit myself, I was able to calmly look at the deadbolt to check that it was locked. It was. Woo. I looked through the peephole to see who was trying to come in, but nobody was standing there. Obviously, this was confusing. I'm neither, neither am I superstitious nor a believer in the supernatural, but I'm also stupid. So my first thought was, is a ghost trying to break into my house, hummy? Thankfully, that thought gave way to more logical thought of maybe they're going around back. So quickly, I moved to the back door to make sure that it was locked, and it was, thank God. But my front doorknob turned again. I tiptoe ran to the front door. At this point, my heart is pounding. My dog, a big protective teddy bear, is looking at me with major concern in his eyes. 
I look through the peephole again, but still there's nobody there. That's when I hear a small knock on my door. As I'm looking through the peephole, then a small child's voice said, Let me in. Silence. Let me in. I'm still looking through the peephole while covering my mouth with my hand to make my breathing quieter. Through the peephole, I see a small three-year-old-ish girl walk to the edge of the porch and look into my bushes. She nods, then says okay in what I think is supposed to be a whisper. She walks closer to the door again. I lose sight of her in the peephole, and she tries the handle again, then knocks and says, Please help me. My uncle is a cop, so I had heard about people using children as a way to get people to open their door before a blitz attack. So I'm pretty sure that's what's happening right now. I wasn't sure how to handle this situation, so I just said, not even into a phone, Hi, I think somebody's trying to break into my apartment. Yes, my address is 123 Fake Street Avenue. Yeah, I'll stay on the line. I then saw a shadow emerge from the bushes. Thankfully, they scooped the kid up and ran off. There were two people and the kid. People who tried to break into my apartment to rob or kill me, let's not ever meet. Well, I'd say you handled that well for alleging that you're dumb. Okay, this next one is called Approached by Armed Creeper on a Rural Track. I've just recently discovered this subreddit, and I have a story to share that has really traumatized me for quite a while now. Ugh. And I feel this is a good place to share it, and it will be my first big Reddit post. Oh boy. A lot, if not all of the posts I have read here, are American slash Canadian, so for context, it's important to know that I start from... Oh, for fuck's sake. Aotearoa, New Zealand. Aotearoa? Aotearoa? I don't know. Some city in New Zealand. We do have the odd missing person or scary case, but it's otherwise safe here and not much happens. I mean that in a way that as a 19-year-old girl, I feel comfortable to walk the streets at night or go on hikes alone because it's pretty safe and everybody looks out for one another, usually. This happened in the summer of 2019. I will link a location so you can better understand and hopefully better understand and hopefully some pictures if I can find online. My boyfriend and I were headed out on a picnic date to a spot we had visited before plenty of times. Oh my god. Karakarikariki track? Someone's just fucking with me. Karakariki track. It's at the end of a very long, windy, rural farm road off, off of the state highway, so if you drive for 15 to 20 minutes from the main road down a long farm stretch, and at the end there's a large cul-de-sac and surrounding massive farm. The owners of the farm have left the land kind of open to the public as a reserve because there are native trees and other things, and because about a 15-minute walk from the cul-de-sac car park, there's a small waterfall that you can swim in. The track is really popular as one of the closest swimming spots to the nearest city, Hamilton. And it's really scenic. You cross footbridges, pass by creek beds, etc. The farmers still go through every now and again to do their farm work, and there are fenced-off areas that the public can't enter as they are actively being worked by the farmers. This particular day, my boyfriend and I were super happy because it was empty in the parking lot and it was a super hot summer day, so that was really rare. The farmer was crossing the cows through the gate on the quad as we arrived, and he smiled and waved at us. He's an older man, and we had spoke with him before as we were regular visitors. So we set off towards the waterfall. We crossed one footbridge and passed through a big paddock of cows. The track is quite narrow, and the creek is right off the edges, so you have to be careful. We saw the waterfall, decided against swimming as we had no towels, and headed back to the car park. Now on our way back, we decided to go down a little bit, go down a little bit, of a steep gravel off-ramp on the track that led to a more private tree-covered area right by the creek. 
And here's where it starts. Oh, geez. We were kissing and whatnot. I was laying on my stomach reading a book, and my boyfriend was sitting up, playing on his phone, and he was rubbing my back and playing with my hair. We were there for about ten minutes before I turned and glanced up the gravel path. And way up further on the hill, through one of the farmer's gates, I saw a big man on a quad bike who I didn't recognize as one of the farmers, as there's only an old couple who worked the land. He was just sitting there, staring at my boyfriend, and I didn't even want to think about how long he had been there before we had noticed. I told my boyfriend, and as soon as he saw the guy, we were both looking at him, he opened the gate and started heading down. Now both of us immediately got up to leave, as we did not want to have the conversation with a farmer about us getting freaky on his land which is what we both assumed would happen, but it was so much worse. The guy came down the, dra- the gravel track and ran his quad right through the creek. He left it there running in the water and got off. He was talking to himself, saying things along the lines of, ah, oh, fuck, I've messed up my quad, I've fucked up my engine, over and over before he even got near us. My boyfriend and I were gathering our things to leave at this point, and he starts to head towards us. He didn't even make small talk, which was really strange, because he went, straight into saying, have you guys seen any fish? I'm looking for some fish to kill. My boyfriend tells the guy there's no fish in the creek as it's fresh water and he's probably better off trying to catch some eel. And this sends him into a fit and he starts saying, I don't want fucking eel, I want to kill some fucking fish. I had made it a point not to look the guy in the eyes as I didn't want to draw a conversation towards myself because I'm already extremely freaked out and I didn't want him to notice that. My boyfriend is much more of the calm and strong ones when it comes to stuff like this, but for a second... I did look at the guy and thought he looked like his face was slightly deformed, possible Bell's palsy. As I worked in aged care and I've seen quite a bit, I've seen it a bit and it looks similar. I bent down to tie my shoes when I was standing back up. That's when I saw a pistol on the man's waist. Listen to me close now. This is the first and last time in my entire life I've seen a real gun. What the fuck? Oh yeah, New Zealand. I forgot about your your gun ban. It's incredibly hard to get a firearm in New Zealand, especially after the regulations following the mass shooting in Christchurch. And not only that, he had one pistol on his belt and was waving another one around his head while he was talking to my boyfriend about wanting to kill some fish. He was aiming it down the creek every now and again and swinging it around on on his finger. My boyfriend gave me the stern look, and stern is the best word for it, because the look spoke a million things to me. In that moment, he nodded his head towards the gravel hill leading back to the track. I grabbed the two bags... We had fake-checked my phone and told the man that our family was waiting for us at the car park. He completely ignored what I said and instead said, that's a cool hat you got, or something about my hat that was completely irrelevant, so I dismissed myself and said goodbye and made my way up the hill. In my mind, I did not want to look back and see my boyfriend be shot and then a gun at my head. I knew that our best bet was me getting up on the hill in the narrow path so he couldn't ride his quad down and sprinting to the farmer's house. As I'm walking up the hill, the guy says to my boyfriend, that's a really pretty girl you got there. It was like all the intentions of his, I don't want to... And it was like all the intentions of his, I didn't want to believe were confirmed. I felt like I would die. My boyfriend, though, said a quick thank you, we'll be off now, and headed up the hill with me. The guy kept talking on like the conversation hadn't ended, even as we headed away, and he stood there, gun in hand, watching us leave. As soon as we were around the corner, we sprinted all the way back to the car park where we hadn't noticed before there were probably ten empty gun gun shells. Bullet shells? Bullet casings, you mean? I don't even know, but empty used bullets. 
We had run into two girls in bikinis just arriving at the spot as we did and informed them about everything. They got in their cars and left immediately. We tried to go to the farmer's house to ask if he knew the guys. We had never seen him on the land before, but there was they were not home anymore. As for the gun, it's still so freaky to me as I had never seen one before, but these pistols looked quite old and rusty. And when we discussed the incident on the way home, my boyfriend suggested that they were probably handed down to him from somebody else. This incident has stuck with me for the past few years. My boyfriend and I have not been able to return to the spot, which sucks because that's where we had our first date and it was a really sentimental place for us. I had to drive past the road leading to the track for like a year as I commuted between towns and it always made me feel sick to my stomach. I could have lost my life or my partner that day or so much worse and I'm always extremely grateful that my boyfriend is the man that he is and he was able to steer the guy away from us for us to leave and to communicate to me through movement to tell me what to do in my freaked out state. He told me after that he was ready to die if he had to because knowing the guy had been watching us beforehand and complimented me in the way that he did, it was clear that he could have had some scary intentions. It also made me way more fearful now to travel in the bush alone, which I've done my whole life. Any questions are welcome. Kia Ora. Well, I guess uh, one man's Tuesday is another man's nightmare. (laughs) Jesus Christ, that was scary. Just got to... Just got a fucking, a good old boy and a little bit of that trailer park speed with a gun. What's wrong with you? You've never been to the middle of any state in this country? Apparently not. That's funny. That's uh, that's just a Tuesday in backcountry anywhere you go, really. But I guess if it scared her, whatever. <laughs> I shouldn't knock it because it seemed pretty truthful. But uh, we're going to take a break on that note. They say living in Los Santos is the equivalent of smoking a pack a day. If that's the case, then I want a choice in the matter. So I chose Redwood. I used to sell my body for drug money on the streets. Now I've cleaned up and have a wife and go to church. And I owe it all to Redwood cigarettes. Sometimes when I get really stressed out, I beat my children with anything I can lay my hands on. Since I tried Redwoods, I find a way to relax 20 or 30 times a day. I know it's bad for me, but what's more important, me or my children? Stress kills millions of people each year and causes divorces, automobile accidents, and even war. When stress is about to get you, get a Redwood. Redwood Cigarettes, proud sponsor of the LS City Marathon, Sounds like you got a nasty cough. Yeah? No shit. Here, baby. Try this. Soothe? Yeah. Soothe annihilates cough and cold symptoms. Wow. I'm seeing donkeys. (laughs) That's the patented cough-killing concoction of codeine, morphine, and alcohol. Your cold will be history. How's your cold now? Who the hell are you? I'm your wife, fool. Soothe kills a cough fast. And for the kid's chesty cough, it's Soothe Junior, the medication that comes in a fun, animal-shaped container kids will love. Hey, look at me. I'm binging on medication just like Dad. Oh, my God, he's barely breathing. No, that's just the, the medicine doing his magic. Thanks to Soothe, his cough is history. With Soothe, you'll forget you had a cough, your name, or where to properly go to the bathroom. Feel better fast with Soothe. Okay, here's another one. Man in Miami nightclub casually threatened my life. 
I know of this subreddit because I stumbled upon some YouTube videos about stories from here and I've always wanted to share this story somewhere, just never knew the right venue. Here I am, bitches. Legit, three people know this story because I don't talk about it. The events happened 13 years ago and it still messes with me to this day, even though I'm not in any sort of danger. When I was in college, I got super depressed and stressed out near my junior year. I was always super into school and just started slipping near the end of my college term, so it threw me off bad. Never experienced failing at subjects before, and it threw me into ridiculous stress. I graduated and figured out everything would go away with that, but I found myself still feeling very mentally foggy. My sister knew how bad off I was from the last few years of school, so she, she hatched a plan to surprise me. I always wanted to go to Miami growing up. I know how lame that sounds, but being a girl who grew up in the Midwest and even went to college there, it was always super exciting looking to me. Up to this point, I'd traveled but never went anywhere as lively or big as Miami always seemed. My sister planned a five-night vacation with me as a way to get me out of the mental fog and also to celebrate in our own way of my graduating college. I was super excited. The few months passed and it was time for the trip. We get there, and the first few nights were incredible. We hit up the restaurants I had on my little list of places to try and spent many hours by the ocean. I was never a big party girl. Up to this point in my life, I was drunk maybe twice. My sister was the opposite, who was at every party that happened in our little hometown. She got bored of going back to the room so early every night and convinced me to go to a nightclub with her for the first time. I fought it a little bit, but let my guard down because I was feeling great for the first time in a long time and was ready to try new shit. Like Cuban guys. <laughs> it was a Saturday night downtown in the middle of summer. We get to this nightclub and the line was legit wrapped around the building. It was massive. We waited in line for what felt like forever and were let in finally. I walked in the door and felt like I got shot because of the loudness. My sister dragged me to the bar and ordered some shots of some drink with a funny name. Again, I decided to just let my guard down and try new things. As more shots went down, I decided... I decided that would be the theme of the night, trying new stuff out. I was aware how boring I was, in my opinion, and I was in the most exciting place in the world. Around 45 minutes into dancing and drinking, I became very drunk, borderline blackout. I was sloppy drunk, and I was aware of it. I found myself laying on a couch thing in the upstairs area overlooking the dance floor as my sister was dancing with some guy. As I say... As I say there, trying to consciously sober myself up, I realized how bad I had to pee. I brought myself up to a sitting position on the couch and... No, she didn't piss on the couch, unfortunately. On the couch to stand up and walk to the nearby bathroom. As I sat up, a massive man quickly sat so close to me I could feel his leather pants pressed against my legs. He was huge, over six feet tall, and looked like some sort of a bodybuilder. Admittedly, he was very good looking, but I was so drunk that I wasn't even trying to flirt. I just wanted to find the shitter. He smiled at me and yelled over the music something like, Leaving so soon... I remember nervously laughing and attempted to get up, but he grabbed onto my dress to pull me back down into a sitting position next to him. His smile went away, and he said in a very deep tone, I don't remember telling you you were allowed to leave, bitch. <laughs> That's one way to do it. Even though I was very drunk leading up to this, I felt like I sobered up within seconds. I never had anything like this happen to me before, but I wasn't just going to allow this guy, no matter how much bigger than me he is, to do that to me. I attempted to stand up again and do the exact same thing, but more aggressive. I thought it was insanely rude, but I wasn't afraid because of how many people were around me. 
He tapped my heels with his big leather boots and said, I couldn't help but notice how much I want to fuck your feet. <laughs> oh, God. My fight or flight kicked in. I slapped him in the face and stood up to walk away. I was very uncomfortable, but I still wasn't afraid just because of the amount of people around. As I was walking away, I heard him laughing and he yelled at me, I'm trying to decide if I want to keep your feet after I cut the rest of your sexy body up into little pieces. I still hear it in my mind, clear as day. I walk away very quickly as I attempted to search for my sister on the dance floor from above. I couldn't find her, so I decided to take my phone out to text her just to see if I had missed a call from her. I was out of eyeshot from the dude and cut away into the bathroom so I could call her back. I, it was still pretty loud in there, but it wasn't loud enough to where she couldn't hear me on the phone. I went into a stall and called her back. As I was in the stall, I heard the bathroom door open and somebody went into the one directly next to me. I was waiting for her to pick up when I looked down underneath the stall and saw the same guy's very distinct yellow leather boots. He was just standing there. I felt like I was about to die. I know he knew I was in there. I held my breath and hung up the phone, just staring at the shoes. Not moving a single bit from when he had shut the door. I heard the main bathroom door open again and immediately ran out of the stall, out of the door, and straight outside the club without slowing down once. I was terrified. Just so happens my sister was close to where I came out, trying to call me to ask if I was ready to leave. I told her we needed to get back as soon as possible. We got back to the room safely, and I told her everything that had happened. She, she suggested calling the police, but I was ready to just drop it. We changed our flight, and the next night flight back home. What? And the next night flew back home. Nice. I searched for a few years pretty actively online for a rest in the area to see if it would ever come up. He never did. After a few years, I moved on mentally and got over it for the most part. It's hands down the scariest moment of my life. I don't know who this guy was, and if he was just saying things to scare me, or if he was serious. But dude from the club, let's not ever meet. Well, that was cute. He's wearing leather pants and yellow leather boots. I guess construction boots are yellow leather, but... Eh, I don't believe you. Please, okay, here's another one. He's what I'm dreaming of. Please do not message me asking me to narrate. The answer will always be no. I'm not going to ask you to narrate a story, bitch. That's what I do. Fuck you. Bad start. This took place early this year, actually between January and April. I was at my job where I work as a cashier in a chain of grocery stores. Oh, oh man. We might know each other. That's contained within now a mostly empty strip of mall. On the left, we used, we used to have a department store that went out of business, and on the right, we have several other empty stores. These are all connected through a sidewalk in an L-shape. Ooh, you work at the Glendora Ralphs, bitch. <laughs> uh, or not, who knows. I'm 20, average height and weight Hispanic. To be honest, I'm not super attractive, but I think that I'm fairly friendly. I remember meeting Eric with clarity. He'd come in. He'd come in and to my line two days in a row. I greeted him the same as I greet everybody when I have the mental energy to be outgoing. Honestly, I had a lot more energy before all this started. You need to have energy, bitch. You work in a customer service job. Eric wasn't tall, maybe average height, and a little overweight. With his gator and hat, I couldn't tell you how old I thought he was. 20s or 30s, I would later find out that he's in his 40s. He always wore this distinctive red hat and a sweatshirt, basketball shorts, along with sneakers... Or something along those lines. He didn't seem dangerous, though, and I didn't think much about it. We didn't talk the first time, 
On the second time, he was just any other customer. I only remembered him because he repeatedly would come into my line when I had never seen him before. I figured he was probably new to the area or just started coming from a different store. And he was just a new regular. I was a little unnerved when I would do my shifts at self-checkout and he would come sit at the bench near my station. He wouldn't say anything. He would just eat and hang around. This wasn't unusual, but I noticed that sometimes he would watch me. One time, while standing beside him to watch the registers, he began singing a song about being from heaven. I don't know if this was directed at me or just a bad coincidence that he started that he started after I got to my spot, but it weirded me out. Things escalated when on my day off, I received a message from a co-worker named Leo about flowers that had been purchased and left for me. Immediately, I thought it was a prank. I hoped in part that it wasn't, and it was from another co-worker, Jake, that I had been talking to. Somehow, I think I knew it wasn't. When prompted about who it could have been, he said it was just some guy. He matched the description of Eric, who I'd never had a proper conversation with, but remembered coming by me every day. I got to work the next day and found out he'd also left a card. No one seemed to want to tell me what was in it, but eventually they gave me the card and returned the flowers. Inside it was what seemed to be a bunch of nonsense, talking about how there was not many around him, and I could be a real one. It might have been funny, but I've had incidents in the past and it was just scary. The end of the card was signed with his name and a heart, and the phrase, You want something you've been dreaming of? It's me. (laughs) He plugged just about every single social media platform you can think of, from Instagram to Facebook, to his number. It had been read by everybody at the front end, and they all made fun of the guy and told me to forget about it, but I was seriously unnerved. Leo mentioned he said it was my birthday the day that he left the card and flowers, but told me he thought my birthday was later in the year. It is. Apparently, Eric claimed to be my good childhood friend or friend from school. He told some people that we were close, asked for my schedule so he could catch up with me. At least in this case, my coworkers were trained not to give it out. He came back later and asked a different coworker who also refused his request. Fuck yeah. Good job, guys. I asked management to do something, anything, because now I was starting to become scared. My manager asked me if I'd ever, if I'd ever been nice to him or indicated that we were friends or more. In my haste, I reminded her that I'm not allowed to be mean to customers, no matter what, as it's a rule they've pushed upon us. She maintained that I was to keep up, but just tell him I wasn't interested the next time that I saw him. Things came to a head after that. I was on self-checkout, and the hours run from 3 p.m. to 10 p.m. Usually, Eric would come into the store between 4 to 6 p.m. and hang out for half an hour at most. This time, he showed up at 8. I was in the middle of helping a customer, so I didn't know... He'd come in until I saw him walking towards me. Something in me just snapped. I walked a few feet away to Jake and asked him to go get one of our managers. While he went, Eric kind of just followed me around self-checkout. If I went up through the registers, he also went up through the registers. If I was near the bank, he'd be heading towards the bank. I was acutely aware that he was following me and wound up squeezing up besides an elderly couple checking out and asking if I could stay because I was scared. He attempted to also squeeze in by them and I lost it and ran to the front desk to explain what was happening because it was taking too long for management to get over to me. They sent me to stand at the cashier's area while they also contacted management and informed the cashiers not to let me leave their site. The whole time, Eric was just circling around the register without trying to talk to me. He'd walk past, slow down as he was behind me, and exit the door before coming back and going the other way. Sometimes he would just stand behind me while I bagged. Eventually, they... They needed coupons for my registers, so they sent me back over there with keys and another coworker, Paul. 
Unfortunately, nobody explained to Paul the gravity of the situation, and by the time we got over there, he'd wandered away from me and was out of sight. When I noticed he was gone, Eric was already back over, attempting to get close to me again. I ran back to the front desk, and by now management and Jake had made their way too. She asked me a few questions about the situation and finally agreed to call the cops. In the meantime, I was to wait with the cashiers, and Jake, and security would stay with us. Once Eric realized there was absolutely no way to isolate me, he booked it. The cops didn't find him, but I did speak with them about filing a report. Jake let me stay at his home until my mom got home, since she was out of town and I didn't want to be alone. They did find him and arrest him weeks later. For what? He was banned from the store. I wish I could say this was the end of the story. Management decided to rescind the ban and allow him in the store again several months later, despite him having apparently done this to other employees at other stores nearby. He continues to do it, having moved on to two of my other co-workers in succession. He still comes into the store. I still see him every day, though now he ignores me. That's fucked up. But uh, it sounds like you have weak management. That's what I blame that problem on. Weak-ass management. Throw that fucker out, he starts being creepy. Fuck that shit. But I do think I know what store you're at. <laughs> that's funny. Oh, jeez. It's a small grocery world, that's for sure. Break time. The sun, giver of all life. The Mayans worship the sun. Then they disappeared without a trace. Don't let this happen to you. The fact is, if you spend time in the sun, you're almost certain to die. All leading medical practitioners have determined sun exposure causes cancer and heartburn. I'm an expert. Going in the sun is as dangerous as smoking or living too near a nuclear power station. Oh no, not chemo again. No, never again with Tropicarcinoma. Keep out the sun's dangerous rays with Tropicarcinoma. It's a unique blend of coconut oil, zinc, aluminum, boron, magnesium, and other volatile metals to neutralize the sun's rays and form a chemical shield. It's just great for the skin and the IQ. Tropicarcinoma. I'm a lifeguard and I love Tropicarcinoma. I even coat my eyeballs and digestive tract. I'm white as a sheet and shooting blanks. I feel great about myself, and that's important. A friend of mine asked me, why spend time in the sun if it's dangerous and you don't want to tan? And I just laugh and try not to think about it. Tropicarcinoma. Give the sun a challenge. In darkness, you only have your nocturnal instincts to rely on. Ultimate Disc in the Dark, the electric, stimulating new game that's sweeping San Fierro. It's a non-contact contact sport where you throw a flying disc in the dark. I got it. Oh, get him. It's a new competitive sport for the uncompetitive, an aggressive, action-packed game for those who love nature and living on the edge. It's harder than football. It's faster than rugby. It's about throwing a plastic disc and catching it. Pitch, then catch, run to the goal, and score. Ultimate disc in the dark. Just like a real sport, only we made it up, and it has a great social side. Uh, oh my god, what team are you on? I'm on the other team. Me too. Ah, uh, take that, silly. But if you catch it, you gotta know what to do with it. Some will struggle, some will submit. Everyone is laughing, Again. but it's your quest to come out on top. This is a great excuse for some serious fun and a way to meet people like you and never see them again. Oh, that's good. League games begin at sunset every night in San Fierro Civic Park or start your own game. And because it's night, it's not too embarrassing to play a strip version. Come and play Ultimate Disc in the Dark. All right, this next one is Witch's Willow. Once upon a time... Long ago, there lived a young woman in a small village. The region where exactly is long forgotten, but the name was Willow Way. 
Willow Way was the home of 150 souls and was a very proper, clean, tidy, upstanding little village whose people were wholesome, law-abiding citizens who went to church every Sunday and were always ready to help anybody in need. The young woman's name was Bessie Martin, and she was what the villagers called the child of nature, and they were all very wary and suspicious of her, which surprised and quite upset Bessie, as she did not think there was anything outlandish or odd about her lifestyle or habits. After all, she merely prepared and brewed natural remedies to treat and cure minor ailments using herbs, flowers, and plants, and baked bread and other baked goods to earn a modest, decent living, as her grandmother did before her. When Bessie was three, her mother died from a lung disease, so Bessie went to live with her grandma. And as she got older, helped grandma, grandmother with her tiny home bakery business. Her tiny home cupcake business? Come on. Bessie grew up to be a good, true, honest girl who was as beautiful as she was kind, and by the time her grandmother passed away when Bessie was 21, she had quite a lot of admirers. The mayor of Willoway had a handsome young son who at the time of this story was 25. His name was Roderick. He was very tall, very strong, and with a group of friends, like nothing more than going out in the area, spending their money, drinking and fighting with the local youths of the community. Nothing ever happened to Roderick or his friends, because money can pay off injuries and damages and buy freedom. Roderick had a long-term understanding. He was betrothed to the village squire's lovely daughter, May. She was pretty, 18, and educated in the ways of a lady of high status. Now, the story told is that one day, when Bessie Martin was by the stream, she had been spending a much-deserved morning off from baking to enjoy a warm spring sunshine. After paddling her small, dainty feet in the cool, calming water, she decided to rest up against the big old willow tree. Suddenly, she saw Roderick, or more appropriately, Roderick saw her. They did know of each other's existence. Roderick was taken by her assured confidence, her wild yet gentle beauty, and her pure kind soul, which was one thing that his betrothed May did not possess. For Bessie's part, she was intrigued by him and his boisterous and wayward behavior, fascinated by his entire presence and flattered by his attention to her femininity. What happened next does not need to be mentioned, it can be imagined, but needless to say it began with, Hello, fair maiden. Promises spoken that could not be kept, not even by the most honorable of men, and we know Roderick was not all that honorable. It finished with a heavy, swollen belly and bitter tears of loneliness. Roderick and May were married in the autumn after Roderick's little secret liaison with Bessie ended so bitterly. And the heated longing he had once felt for his bony wildflowers soon cooled off and faded altogether to be replaced by the constant, adoring love for his fresh young bride. A year passed. Bessie had her child, a fair and delicate infant that she named Lily, in the same little cottage that she grew up in for many months. Bessie and her baby lived happy, peaceful, carefree lives. Roderick's decaying, blue, bloated body was discovered by the stream he first saw and started to woo Bessie Martin. What? The cause of his too early demise was unclear to the village... Whatever the fuck that word is. Chichigurgian. I don't know. The, by the village coroner. But soon, uncomfortable and ugly whispers began to ripple through the close-knit, highly religious community of Willow Way. The whisper suggested that Roderick's death was not a natural one, nor not quite murder either. The whispers, insidious and filled with untamed spite, spoke of taboo and unholy acts committed by the godless and wanton creatures. One creature in particular was the subject of these unfounded suspicions. These suspicions were now, were not new, merely old ones given more fuel by fresh and undeniable evidence of wrongdoing. The whispers were of Bessie Martin, and the source of the whispers, perhaps quite understandably, was May. The first thing, 
The first thing Bessie knew of the angry mob was when they used brute force to break down the little wooden door and drag Bessie out of her meager bed by her hair. Another member of the mob plucked the terrified babe Lily from the cozy warm cot and followed the leader out of the small dwelling, where the mayor of the good upstanding Willoway in turn put his lighted torch to the modest cottage. The kindling blazed throughout the deep dark night. The vengeful mob brought Bessie Martin to her beloved Willow. They strung her up to the tree by her neck. They watched until the last flicker of life left her twitching, tortured body. When the corpse of Bessie Martin swung limply to and fro, the mayor of Willoway coldly placed the fragile infant lily in the hollow of the willow, turned away, and commanded the mob to leave. Before she relinquished her precious life to the pitiful wails of her cherished child, she looked over upon the still tranquil stream where her lost love had made so many breakable promises to her and in turn had paid for his indiscretions in a watery grave. Cold, steely hatred of everything and everyone who had forsaken her and her innocent lily filled up her eyes, replacing her tears of sorrow, and it came with the hex. The hex was as dark as the night around her. It formed. She succumbed. Bessie Martin was 23 when she died. Lily Martin was eight months when she died. A month after the fateful night, a youth from the neighboring village came forward to confess that he was present on the day that Roderick died. They had fought. Roderick lost his footing and fell, banging his head against a rock on the bank of the stream. Roderick had fallen into the water. The youth, fearful that he would be accused of murder, panicked and fled. However, his conscience laid heavy on him, and he soon felt obliged to come forward and tell his tale. Nothing happened. Well, what could happen? The angry mob had already executed, or had already exacted their gruesome vengeance and terrible revenge after acting as a judge, jury, and executioner. A few weeks after this unfortunate youth's confession, the mayor of Willow Way was found dead near the willow. The village coroner of the yet unknowing, darned little village found death was caused by a bullet to the heart, probably a lethal hunting accident, although no living person was found in the area, and the bullet indeed came from the mayor's own gun. A few months after the mayor's death, May, the newly bereft young widow of Roderick, was found by the housemaid face down in the stream. Talk was that she had been a shadow of her former self since her husband's untimely passing, and was unable to fend off the dark, sinister shadow of grief that had chosen or unable to fend off the dark, sinister shadow of Greece, had chosen to join her groom. Others believed that a more ominous, supernatural hand had guided and overseen the two sad tragedies that kept their notions to themselves. It is said that the small village of Willow Way and the immediate area around it was soon after abandoned to nature herself, and left to its own devices, it became dilapidated, and an odd sensation of dread and fear soon rose up all around it. The area soon evolved into a place of shadow and darkness, of boogeymen and childhood nightmares. All that's left of Willow Way now is the legends of the Witch's Willow. If you find yourself in the area, maybe you'll wander upon Bessie Martin's cottage or where it once stood. People say that it's still possible to see a circle of burnt, charred ground where she and her baby once lived in their humble little dwelling. Nothing grows there. No bright, colorful wildflowers, no plants or shrubs either, or sounds of beasts or birds. The stream which was once clear as glass and flowed as free as Bessie Martin's own spirit is now sluggish, still as the grave, with dark, oily black, slimy water. Sometimes a cry of an infant has been heard around the looming ancient twisted willow where an, where an age ago a young, beautiful, carefree girl sat enjoying the warm spring sun, and where a year later she and her baby girl lost their lives in the name of misdirected anger and prejudice. 
A person needs to take care not to get too close to the slippery bank and the long, tangled weeds that straggle up from the murky depths of the stagnant stream to lay listlessly against the bank. In case they miraculously intertwine themselves around curious exploring feet and drag them down beneath the surface of the cursed water. That was a good one. Not what I expected, but pretty good. Having trouble finding a place to park? Notice the lines are getting longer at the food store? 19 million illegal aliens live in this country, most of them in San Andreas. Our organization has banned immigration green cards outright today. Preserve the status quo in our favor. Vote yes on Proposition 832. Illegal aliens do a valuable job packing groceries and caring for your lawn, but they should learn. America is not a land of handouts. While they're illegal, they have no rights, they have no status, they have no expectations. And they're happy to be here. It's a win-win for America. If we give them green cards, soon they'll be just like us. Overweight, unhappy, and too lazy to do menial tasks. Vote yes on Proposition 832. Mom! Josh just broke the vodka bottle on your nightstand. Chris did it! You little shits, I'll kill you! Raising a family in the suburbs is tough, especially when you used to be a hip single woman on her own in a cool enclave of town. With today's stresses, it's difficult to maintain a loving, exploratory sex relationship with your husband and counter the temptations to kill your own children. I love my family. What can I do? Sometimes you need a helping hand. Send the right message about values and character. With Grin, Grin readjusts your brain chemistry in a completely safe way. I hated my life. Now I love my minivan. Instead of spending time with friends, I work on the house. The Earth is bipolar. I am too. Grin keeps me at the equator. Primitive, sunny, and all always feeling hot. Grin is scientifically formulated by science to help cure the anxiety, depression, and lack of self-confidence that comes with living a new life in the suburbs. It's safe and non-addictive. After all, what could be habit-forming about a pill that makes you feel better all of the time? If you're feeling like nothing matters, unemotional, and gaining weight, why not regain your confidence with Grin? Yeah, regain this confidence, Holmes. All right, this next one's called Family Friends Creepy Neighbor. True story. Hmm, they had to put it in the title. When I was 12, Mama and I became homeless. There was a waiting list of about six weeks before there was a space at the local homeless family shelter, so we stayed with a really good family friend for six weeks in the bedsit where she lived, which is communal living with a shared bathroom, kitchen, and laundry facility. I love this as Jay, family friend, was fun, young, and pretty. She spoiled... Excuse me. She spoiled me rotten, getting me things to do and giving me a lot of time and attention in between going to work. She also had lots of different people going in and out of her rooms all, at all times of the day and night. It was what some people might call a party house. It's what I would call a brothel. Most of the people living in the bed set were awesome. A lot of musicians, actors, and bohemians from all different backgrounds and cultures. I made cupcakes with a drag artist who worked in a Soho club. Painted with an artist using her materials to make my mom a picture, and sometimes a goth band who lived there would come and jam, letting me play their instruments with them. They were all lovely people, and a lot became and a lot of them became quite protective of mother and I. There was one guy, R, who Mama was a little mistrustful R of. R was around 25, 27, tall, lanky, really pale with brown, sad eyes. I was total, totally oblivious to anything major, but I always felt slightly different around him to the other people who came in and out constantly. The feeling didn't so much as come from me, rather, but R himself, and I couldn't put my finger on it being 12. 
I was always an outgoing, friendly kid around everybody I met, but for some reason I was more reserved around him. One night it all kicked off. It was Friday and my uncle had come to stay. He was 28, lean and wiry, but looked like he could handle himself. As I said before, Jay, the family friend, was more like family to us. She is my youngest auntie's best friend from the age of three and had in fact lived with my grand, my grand, granddad and their nine children when she was a kid. So my uncle Jay and indeed my mama had all grown up together as siblings. That evening, P had made macaroni and cheese for mama, me and myself. Jay was getting ready to go out for the evening. When suddenly there was a knock on the door, and on saying come in, the door opens and R appears. I was scratching my uncle's back. Our entire family absolutely loved this activity. What the fuck? And after Jay told R she was going out and offering him a can of beer, she went to get him one. R says to me, I'd like a back scratch too, sweetheart. When R said... This, I felt my uncle bristle, and he scowled at R, and there was an awkward silence. Then my uncle got up to get himself a can of cider, and R followed my uncle into the small kitchenette. There were muffled voices, and suddenly we heard my uncle say, narkily, You're out of fucking order, Holmes. She's my niece, and she's only 12 years old. Jay hurried into the kitchenette to try and calm things down, but the next thing I knew, R had run out of the bedsit really quickly, and my uncle, P, came back into the living room with Jay, close behind him, looking vexed. Nobody said anything else about the incident that night, but Jay went out as planned, and Mama and my uncle had a family, a quiet family night in playing board games and watching TV. I did hear my Mama and Uncle talk quietly about the incident after I had gone to bed later. The bed was in the living room, divided by a really thick, heavy curtain, but their voices were so hushed that I could barely hear them. In the following weeks, the other residents of the bedsit tried to have conversations about the incident with Mama and Jay, but the only people Mama confided in was the drag artist and the biker guy who was really nice and kind, and I was never privy to those conversations. My uncle stayed another few weeks, and the four of us, along with the rest of the residents in the bedsit, had a good summer. I heard that R got nicked for drug possession, and I personally never saw him again after that night. The other residents talked about him probably having to move out because he fiddled the landlord out of rent. And after six weeks, Mama and I moved into the homeless family shelter. Well, that was the most boring, fucking stupid-ass story I've ever heard in my goddamn life. Jesus Christ. I'm gonna take a break. Wow, look at him. I'd do him right now. Yeah, me too. If he weren't bald. You may not know it, but this happens to every man at least twice a day. If you're balding, you might as well kiss sex goodbye. Even if you're 16 and have a full head of hair, women can tell if you're going to go bald. And that spells trouble. Let's face it, women hate bald men, except basketball players. What causes baldness? Don't take this the wrong way, but the explanation may be downstairs. It's bald, and it wants you to be too. Through a partially scientific study, doctors have determined that an abundance of testosterone causes baldness. And let's be honest, who needs testosterone? Now science brings you Castrodon. Castrodon goes to the glands that produce testosterone and kills them, protecting your hair and saving your sex life. Within a few days, you'll notice a big difference. You'll begin to look and feel different. If you're willing to do anything to stop the unspeakable from happening to you, take Castrodon. Remember, baldness? is loneliness. May impair driving, timekeeping, map reading, and home improvement skills. Castrodon may also cause periodic moodiness, retail addiction, face painting, and menstruation. Oof. This one's called The Figure in the Mirror. 
My mama as lots of siblings. As children, my cousins and I were raised together in the three main council houses and flats by my four aunties, mama, and a few good uncles. There is were a few more houses alongside the main ones. The main houses were my grandmother's, where my mother, me, and various older boy cousins were based. My auntie and uncle's flat, where they raised their three kids and I spent most weekends. And my oldest auntie Jay's flat, where she lived with her four older teenage kids, along with her assorted girlfriends slash boyfriends at various times, and where I spent half my childhood. Auntie Jay was more like a second mother. I was as comfortable and close with her as I was with my mama. That day was a regular day. I was in the kitchen at the dining table, drawing and doing whatever seven-year-olds do. Mama was upstairs in one of the bedrooms. Jay was coming in and out of the kitchen, washing up and doing her homework. My older girl cousin, G. All right, I'm not doing these stupid fucking privacy initials anymore. I'm just going to give them their own names. Was out with her friends. My oldest boy cousins, Habel and Benjamin, were at work on the flower stalls. This only left my older boy cousin, Anton, who was in and out of the other flat. He was working on his car down on the estate when his mate, DJ, with his mate, David. Jemima came back into the kitchen and said, You're the only one here, so you can help make dinner. Always liking to help in the kitchen, I agreed readily. I took my wheelchair to the sink to wash my hands, and on returning to the dining table, I happened to look up in the mirror. The mirror was positioned in such a way that it reflected the part of the stairs, the middle part. As clearly... As day in the mirror, I saw a dark, solid figure leaning over the banisters. I automatically called out, Anton, guess what? I'm making dinner. Jemima came back to the kitchen and said, Who are you talking about? Anton, he's on the stairs, I replied. Jemima looked confused and slightly annoyed. There's nobody on the stairs, bitch. I didn't say anything else and was quiet for the rest of the night. Later, Gazelda and Anton came in, noticing I wasn't my usual loud, annoying self, asked me what was wrong. I told them both about the figure and straight away, A. Anton started telling me an obviously made-up story about the flat being haunted by the man in black by Johnny Cash. I didn't believe this, of course. Halfway through, Anton began to laugh and said, I'm making it up, Shiv. There's nothing like that here. You should stop reading those stupid, spooky stories. You are too young. Gazelda glared at her brother and said to me, It's okay, baby. Anton is right. There's nothing like that here. If there was, I would know. We would have seen it, wouldn't we? A nodded, or Anton nodded, and Gazelda cuddled me. That was okay, but knowing that my cousin made up the story made me more uneasy, because if it wasn't that what I did see, as I said, earlier I spent half my childhood at that flat and never saw or felt anything like that again, thank goodness. God, you suck. I really enjoy drinking soda with a straw, but I want one in metal that won't corrode. Yo, check this out. Here's a silver one. Wow, a silver straw. Where'd you get that? At Blatos, Chula. Blatos has all kinds of helpful accessories. Need to break up oregano in the kitchen? Check out our oregano grinders. Blatos, we make daily habits fun. All right, I'm counting on this next one to redeem the last two stinkers. I've been talking to my pentagram for four years. Today it spoke back to me. My pens and I, my friends and I made a pentagram in my basement years ago. It was a small party, and I thought it would be fun or even funny to draw one with a soot from a log into the fire, in the fire pit. We were drunk and just playing silly games around it and chanting to it, candles and all. 
After the party, I'll admit that I was too lazy to clean it up, and I kind of just left it. Well, I didn't just leave it. Sometimes I'd talk to it. I told it about my day, I told it about my friends, people, or media that pissed me off, or about my love interests. I would tell it my desires, my hopes, and my fears. My PC rig as well as my console is in the basement, so naturally I'm down there a lot for hours before bed. My basement is split into two rooms by a gnarly wall that has holes and a door with no door in it. One side is mine, carpeted and nice. The other side is basically all cement with old items, the boiler, electric stuff, and wood for the fireplace. Obviously, my pentagram is in the corner. There's only a single hanging light in the middle of that side of the basement, so my dad has either not seen it or just doesn't give a fuck. I'll admit, I know it's a bad idea to keep a pentagram in my home and talk to it is even worse, but in a way, it's like meditation. I'll put the lights on or light a candle and just talk to it. It spoke back to me today. It's around 2 in the morning now, but at around 12 I got off Battlefield and walked into the other side of the basement. I lit a candle and just spoke to it as I would. This time, though, about fire. How I didn't understand how fire can be so interesting and calming, yet so destructive in nature. I was sitting down beside it, scrolling through my phone when I felt a slight wind. The candle wobbled and went out. Obviously, I turned on my phone's flashlight and was entranced on the smoke rising from the candle. The smoke was being pushed by a slight wind, of which came from the other side of the room. I thought, from maybe the window. I looked to the other side of the room, but I only saw pure darkness. I couldn't make out a single object up against the cement wall, and it looked as if it could go on forever. I shined my light towards it and saw absolutely nothing. It was almost as if my flashlight was pointing towards the sky, illuminating the floor around me, but absolutely useless at illuminating the wall. I'll be honest, even for a kid with a pentagram in the basement, I was scared shitless. I didn't blink. I didn't dare breathe too loudly. I was stiff as a tree, staring into the silent abyss. After what felt like a moment, I heard a voice. The voice was quiet, not a whisper, but it sounded like it came from far away. What do you desire? I felt my heart beating in throughout every part of my body. The hair was now standing straight up all over my body with what felt like a constant shiver. I thought that I shouldn't stall or keep the voice waiting. I blurted out my answer. Life, I said, managing to get the words out with a choke. Again, for what felt like a minute, nothing, just pure darkness and feeling utter terror from what was happening, I couldn't move. I chose not to, not even an inch. Then bring me blood, it said. I didn't mean to, but mixed with terror and my eyes being so dry, I shut them quickly to blink and process what had happened. I saw the cement wall. My basement seemed to be back to normal. I ran up to my room and shut the door as fast as I could. Somehow, an hour went by from when I started speaking to the pentagram to now. How can I process what just happened? I'm almost a grown man, freaked out under my covers from something I heard in the basement. I feel pathetic. But I heard a voice in the dark abyss asking for blood. What blood? Whose blood? These questions are running around in my mind right now. If I give the pentagram blood, what will happen? Will I get what I asked? Will it take my life if I don't? I need to get the thing blood. I'll update tomorrow. Sounds like dad's got a sense of humor. (laughs) I could see myself doing that if I had a kid that had a pentagram on the floor in the basement of the home that I owned. Sitting down there talking to it, not talking to me. (laughs) Ha! Fuck you, you little shit. What do you desire? I was hoping you'd say dinner, but uh, life works too. Bring me blood, bitch. (laughs) All right. That's going to be all, guys. Uh, Happy Thanksgiving and what have you. Yes, I said it. Suck it if you don't like it. Um, If you'd like to donate to the show, it would be much appreciated. You can do so by going to patreon.com slash anthologyofhorror. If you'd like to reach out and tell me what a splendid job I'm doing, that would be wonderful. And you can do that by going on to Instagram.com slash DukeLandis17. 
That's right, Instagram.com slash DukeLandis17 and Patreon.com slash Anthology of Horror. If every single one of you donated a job, I could, or donated a job, donated a dollar a month, I could quit my job and do this every day. Actually, I could probably, yeah, I could, I would do well if all quarter million of you donated a dollar every month. I could really, I could buy a studio. I could do a lot. I could do these far more frequently. It would be much appreciated because uh, something's got to change. All right, guys, thank you for your listenership. And thank you guys that do do donate to Patreon. I genuinely appreciate you. And until next time, happy Thanksgiving and stay spooky.